0: Today's episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott. Now, Joe is not only a fantastic guitar player, he draws on his years of experience as the ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and also at the McNally Smith Music College. Here's a few words from Joe about the course. You're tired of
1: waiting through hundreds of random guitar videos and just want to become a better player. Fretboard Biology is your answer. Fretboard Biology is a self-paced, college-level program that will give you the right instruction in the right amounts and in the right order. You'll learn the same information I taught to thousands of other guitar players over 30 years of teaching in top music colleges. If you want to make real progress with your guitar playing, then sign up for a free 7-day trial at fretboardbiology.com.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name is Matt Wakeling and this is the show that I produce in Sydney, Australia, where I speak to some of the world's leading guitarists and also we host the Iconic Albums series and for that I'm joined by my friends Gabor Jaseka. Hey Matt! And Rob Rhodes.
1: Hello to the two of you.
0: Hello. (laughs)
2: Wow, that was...
0: And we talk about some of the most iconic records in our collections. This has been a cool series. We've been running for, I don't know, 20-something episodes by the time this is released, 22 or something. And it's been awesome. It's been such fun. So thank you both for uh, coming back for another round. And tonight...
2: We'll change it all.
1: Tonight, Tonight, the pleasure is all yours.
0: We'll see. Uh, Gabor has brought a record along by a little band called Mr. Bungle, and the record's called California. Over to
2: you, Gabor. All right. So, uh, um, my apologies <laughs> once again. I always apologise in this podcast. Don't
0: apologise, man. No, God. no. So, uh, own, own, it. own it, mate. Own it.
2: Uh, yeah, yeah. We now, know you do. Mr. Bungle, uh, probably one of my... Um, favorite uh, bands of all times and i think probably the band that sort of inspired me more than any other band and i chose this album because it's probably their most accessible album so california uh was the third major label release uh by mr bungle uh they had a bunch of kind of demo cassettes and stuff they released themselves back in the days but um they were signed to warner brothers um mostly because the singer in the band, Mike Patton, joined uh, Faith No More in late 1988. And then in 1989, his other band, which was his original band, Mr. Bungle, got uh, signed to Warner Brothers. Uh, Amazingly, there's actually, hang on, where is it? There's a quote from the Los Angeles Times that wrote, under normal circumstances, you'd have to describe Mr. Bungle's chances of landing a major label deal as a long shot. (laughs) And it is true. So, um, this was the third uh, um, major label release on Warner Brothers and final major label release on Warner Brothers, uh, released on July 13, 1999. Uh, The release was actually scheduled for June 8, but was pushed back by Warner Brothers and more on that later. Or maybe that could be, I don't know if there's any fun facts that Rob came up with that could be part of Rob's Fun Facts too, but there's a little little tidbit that we're going to do later on. <laughs> uh, so the band uh, went through a couple of lineup changes, but in this album you've got Trevor Dunn on bass, uh, Danny Heifetz on uh, percussion and drums, uh, Clinton Bear McKinnon on saxophone and keyboards, uh, Mike Patton on vocals and keyboards, and Trey Spruance on guitar uh, and keyboards, and he... They all produced the album together as a band, uh, and Trey also did some engineering. Um, So it was recorded in late 1998, early 1999, at four different studios, Coast Coast Recorders, Division Hi-Fi, Forking Path Studios, and Different Fur, all in San Francisco. And again, that's something we'll get into later on why it was recorded at four different studios. It was also mixed at three different studios. One was Coast Recorders again, uh, Different Fur Studios, and Soundcastle in LA. Uh, it was produced by the band and engineered by Billy Anderson, who uh, worked with Mr. Bungle on the, uh, album, the prior album uh, Disco Volante as well. Uh, and uh, he worked with a lot of sort of side projects and other bands that all the members in Mr. Bungle have been part of, uh, such as Secret Chiefs 3 which is Trace Bruins' sort of other project, uh, and Phantomus, which is Mike Patton's other albums, Um, and also co-engineered by Trace Bruins. So engineered by Billy Anderson and Trace Bruins and uh, produced by the band. So I'll do just a quick sort of backstory on Mr. Bungle. So Mr. Bungle is a band that formed in 1985 while all the guys were in high school. So they're basically a bunch of guys, Mike Patton and Trevor Dunn and Trey Spruance. really. They're sort of the main guys. They were in high school together and they formed a band and released a bunch of different albums. Originally, they were a thrash metal band, but then they changed the styles into... And, I mean, Mr. Bungle, if anyone knows Mr. Bungle out there, they pretty much do every style you can possibly imagine, usually almost within one song. I was going to uh, say,
0: within <laughs> the first 12 bars. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, <laughs> So uh, uh, it formed then. They released a whole bunch of cassettes and stuff like that that they recorded themselves. Um, but uh, after Mike Patton sort of got famous through being um, in Faith No More and famously wearing the Mr. Bungle T-shirt in the epic film clip, um, they got oh, signed to Warner okay. Brothers. I, I think it, it, Warner Brothers sort of hoping that there was going to be another band that write hits like, like um, uh, Faith No More. In Mr. Bungle, which they were very, very wrong, <laughs> 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 but I mean Mr. Bungle, one of those sort of major cult following bands. I mean, there's sure, they they, yeah. they were huge on a sort of underground mm-hmm. level, uh, and oh. with Patton, Mike Patton, and Faith No More, they got quite big. And, and uh, it, it it's a band, actually surprisingly, lots of musicians, uh, you know, famous musicians when you he interviews with them a lot of them will quote Mr Bungle as an influence in one way or another <clears throat> uh, so they released the three albums the first one was a self-titled Mr Bungle album in 1991 which was also produced by John Zorn I may have mentioned Zorn, John Zorn yeah, a few yeah, times yes, yeah. uh, sort of one of those New York downtown improvisational kind of musicians and and producers and uh, I think through that also all the guys in the band worked with John Zorn on different occasions on different projects in, in, in the future uh, the second album was Disco Volante, which is probably the most out there album, which was released in 1995. Um, so I chose California. I mentioned it before because it's probably the most accessible album for most people. Uh, the first two albums, <laughs> you know, the first album, I, I love them all. I love all three of them. The first album is sort of that kind of funk metal kind of thing with lots of lots of naughty words. <laughs> <laughs> and naughty topics um which we won't want to talk about here disco Volante is just very quirky and out there uh, so this is their most accessible uh album it got very little backing from Warner Brothers because they I think Warner Brothers just wanted to see out the three uh record deal. That they gave Mr. Uh-huh. Bungle, so there was no money. I read a couple of interviews with all the guys in the band. There was zero money from uh, Warner Brothers for promotion. Right. They basically paid for the recording, and that's it. That 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 was their contractual obligations done, okay. and that's it. Um, it was also the first time uh, for the band that they didn't write the songs together in a rehearsal space. All the songs were basically written individually. Uh, and brought in, and it so happened there was no, um, they didn't kind of sit together and say, we're going to go down this kind of stylistic kind of way for this album. It so happened that they all kind of wrote similar kind of style songs in that time that they all brought together, which kind of fit into this. And this is also a kind of the name California came from. I think originally they were going to call the album Technicolor, Um, but with copyright reasons and stuff like that, they couldn't do it. They decided to call it California because there's... And funnily enough, again, you you read interviews with the different members of the band. They all kind of give you different reason why they called it California, uh, because it was sort of different to each of them. But the sort of common consensus was it's sort of surf music... Uh, film music, sort of a lot of it was related to kind of 60s film music. Mm. Uh, Beach Boys kind of thing, you know, that kind of spectre, Phil Spectre sound kind of thing. Um, and also um, a lot of it was that sort of um, uh, what they were talking about, this thing where it looks beautiful on the outside, but once you go a bit deeper down inside, there's a lot <laughs> of not so beautiful stuff going on. um uh, there were also actually a couple of songs came out of a thing they called the Graveyard of Riffs. So apparently when they get when they used to get together and write songs together uh, or try to write songs together in a rehearsal space, riffs that weren't used went into this kind of filing system of some sort. They called the Graveyard of Riffs. Um, and anyone in the band was allowed to, and this is a quote, corpse snatch from the tombs. At any time. So they could take any of the riffs at any time and use them for anything. So they were sort of open to anyone in the band. And uh, so, for example, one of the main riffs, and none of them knew there were robots, uh, one of the songs came from a riff that was written in early 1980s, you know, like in wow. the early 80s. So, you know, they took stuff from everywhere, but most of it was kind of written separately and just tapes were exchanged. Now, before we get into, there's a whole bunch of stuff we're going to get into. <laughs> but before we get into all that sort of stuff. Now, okay, let's start with Rob, just because I like the look on your face. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Bungle, uh, not just this particular album, but Mr. Bungle in general. H- have you had much experience with Mr. Bungle? or?
1: Look, when I had, again, when I had a place with my brother uh, back in, geez, trying to remember the year. Uh, 94, 95, somewhere around there. Okay. It was always, it was on in the house. There was people wearing Mr. Bungle t-shirts. There was Mr. Bungle being played and similar to like the same era that he was playing Primus and, yeah. Um, yeah. and Tea Party and that kind of stuff. Um, where I graduated into becoming a Tea Party fan, I did not graduate into the, I mean, <laughs> a Mr. Bungle fan. Hey,
2: I, I, I graded, graduated into being a Tea Party fan too. So yeah,
1: um, I'm even Faith No More. I'm not a big fan of Faith No Mo- More. I'm one of those fans who think that Faith No More's best records were King for a Day and Album of the Year. Like, I love those two records. Okay, but anything before, like, I'm not into the epic. You know, I think midlife. Uh, what is it? Midlife crisis. That's that angel single? dust. Yeah, that's an angel. That dust. That is an amazing song and production-wise, it's great and melody. I love that song, but that's from. That's the only really um, faith. No more stuff I like. Yeah. And so it's a stretch to follow that and Mike Patton over to this and any of his other projects. I'm not. Yeah. 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 This
2: is. Oh, it's a it's an it, acquired taste. It's an acquired. Yeah, taste.
1: it's it, it's certainly not my thing. Um, yeah, that I, we'll get into, I tried to find things to like about it Okay. and then we'll get into that, I'm sure. But, okay. um, just, yeah, that's, okay. it. That's, that's the, I'm going to put Mr. Bungle in the same category as camping.
2: Ooh. Okay. If you me. put If camping, if, if your camping is in the same category as my camping, then it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> I have no interest in camping. No, me neither. Okay. Especially right. now, but. Or at right, Matt, you look yeah. like a die-hard Bungle fan.
0: Well, I I think I've seen more Bungle t-shirts than I've heard Bungle songs.
2: Okay, yeah, <laughs>
0: I think that's wrong. Now, I I quite liked Faith No More. Um, it seemed, especially at their their pinnacle, the I think I think that was the the pinnacle of my part-time bass career. So I had Bassist Magazine and. Who's the bass player? Was it Billy Gould?
2: Billy Gould, yeah, in Faith No More.
0: I was like reading interviews with him every five minutes, and then Jim Martin, the guitarist from Faith No More,
2: the original and, one, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, the original. He was um he was quite a striking visual presence in that band, oh, yeah. And, and yeah, came with cool parts. So and in it's Bill seemed... and
2: Ted's Excellent Adventures as well. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it was a...
0: We keep getting back to that movie, yeah. or Wayne's World, or. Yeah. They're the, they're the big ones um yeah so i i i knew of bungle obviously through that because because the mike patton connection
2: yeah
0: um so yeah i heard bits of, of bungle but yes yeah, the first time i've heard some in years and i i, I keep laughing because you keep saying this is the most accessible album
2: like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> L- listen to the other stuff that's very very different yeah
1: I can't wait to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I just kept thinking, I kept waiting for like Barnum and Bailey Circus to arrive. I thought it was like circus music. Well, the first is...
2: album is very circus music. Yeah. Uh-huh. The second album is just, is the second album, you need to listen to it from start to finish. And it's it's a trip. It's a real do trip. Do I though? Do I so, though? <laughs> you, you do. It's, it's, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. I think it's brilliant. I really, I really For, really do
0: for it. the record, I really enjoyed this record. So I'm, I'm, I'm keen to talk more about it. Oh, good, um, good, good, good. I would not have sorted out by myself. That's all. That's no. <laughs> all. I would, all I but yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you sent it my way.
2: And I, so, I sort of picked this album too as a as a as a bit of a nod to Trace Bruins because I mean he also was in Faith and More for a little while. So King for a Day, he he um, he played oh, guitar on so that after that Jim John. Martin left.
1: Okay. He was yeah.
2: in it very only very briefly, really yeah, he only left for the recording. Before the tour, yeah, yeah, left, yeah. and there was a lot of bad things between them until very recently. So um, he was apparently not treated very well, and sort of. So I mean, for the I mean, it's a different album, but for King for a Day, it was sort of Mike Patton who kind of want, suggested to have him um, uh, as part of it because he's quite a stylistically. He he does. Cover quite a big range of music, so he can play quite a lot of different styles, and um, I mean, there's beautiful songs like Evidence and stuff. Great guitar on oh, that, I mean, yeah. That's um, and, Bloody you know,
1: musicians, why can't we all get along? Yeah.
2: <laughs> so apparently there was a lot of bad blood, and it wasn't until recently when they did when they reunited and it did some like an anniversary thing for King King for a Day. And uh, he, uh, they invited him to play on that. Uh, on they did like a live thing, and he played with that. And they sort of made up, but there was a, a bit of bad blood from that. That sort of then carried over into Mister Bungle, and one of the reasons why they sort of uh, it was sort of broke up after this album, but then it didn't because they just released a new album not long ago, uh, which was the original demo that they re-recorded, uh, the Raging Wrath of the Easter Bunny, which they released recently yeah. last year i think
0: and didn't um scott ian play on that
2: yeah so so i mean again that's a different sort of thing but um so the original uh they were like a thrash metal band yeah, they, okay. or they in high school and they recorded it and none of them could play the instrument properly and it was recorded on a four track really badly and they all wanted to be because of that from that sort of uh, san francisco bay area and they all wanted to be or California. They were from a bit further north, but from that sort of area. And uh, they all wanted to be uh, Anthrax, and they all wanted to be Slayer. Uh, <laughs> and when it came to, uh, it was Trevor Dunn, the bass player's idea to re- when it when it came to kind of re-recording the original demo, they invited um, Scott Ian and Dave Lombardo. So Scott Ian from Anthrax and uh, Dave Lombardo from Slayer. Mm-hmm. Drama from say to 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 play for it, and it was sort of a whole three hundred and sixty sort of. They came back to, and they said in lots of interviews as well, it was a bit bizarre to think that they had um, the guys they were aspiring to be yeah, are now yeah. playing those songs, their song that they re-recorded. Yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, so I I I, I kind of decided to pick this album, like I mentioned, as almost a bit of a nod to Trace transparency. He does a lot of different stuff. Plays in a lot of different acts. I I, I love Secret Chiefs Three. That's his his sort of thing. Um, but it's a bit sort of a bit more out there and and has less of a fan base than Mr. Bungle. So that's why I picked this as a kind of a nod to him as a whole.
0: Mm, cool.
2: Uh, now standout tracks, Matt.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: that was a prudent, uh that was a prudent choice, maybe. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Like I said, I really enjoyed this record. It was, yeah, it was. I actually wrote the words under uh, Ars Moriendi.
2: Ars Morendi, yeah.
0: Yeah, I just wrote. I was going to write something, and I just wrote "defies description," and I. That's probably the whole record.
2: Well, and that's and that's what I mean. And this is the most the least devised description record that they that they've done. <laughs> the most accessible
0: as the most accessible. As we seem album, to yeah. be saying. Um, <laughs> what's cool? None of them knew they were robots. Just the name is intriguing. Yeah. Um, but the guitar on that it is so drippy that reverb.
2: Yeah, it's, it's great isn't it. Oh, man. He um, just a, and that's just a twin reverb. Uh, we'll find out about that later on. But that's just okay. a twin reverb. Yeah.
0: But man, he's cranked the revo man. It's beautiful. Yeah. The um, Sprons, Yeah, he pulls out a lot of styles. I think convincingly, like some of those really authentic, yeah, wop kind of guitar parts and um, all that stuff. So anyway, none of them knew they were robots. Really like that. Uh, Retro Vertigo was a really beautiful tune. I thought. Yeah, love yeah. that. Um, the Bionic Vapor Boy. It was almost like electro lounge pop something.
2: It's that's that's probably the 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 least fitting into the rest of the album song. I find it, it's it's sort of that's the one that sticks out the most. Uh huh. Um, Golem two, the bionic vapor boy. Yeah, it's a bit of an odd one.
0: As the least, most inaccessible. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a double negative? Wow. I mean,
1: if this album didn't make my brain explode, that statement just finished the I, I job. Think
0: we're traveling through time there. To be fair, I did say it defies description. So that was my no. disclaimer no. for anything I say. Yeah. There's a song I can't remember the name. It, it kind of slipped by. Um, I, li- I actually I had my first listen of this album as I was doing the shopping at Woolies.
2: Oh, wow. Um, that would have made shopping at Willis interesting, yeah. It was
0: trippy, man. <laughs> For our international guests, that's a uh, supermarket, supermarket where you buy your food. Um, yeah, I'm in the fruit section and it's just going on. There was some song. It made the link between poker music and thrash metal very obvious. It made me think, why have people not done this all? <laughs> Do you know what song I'm talking about, Gabor?
2: Uh that it could be Asmara. That's that's the one that has it has that it, it has quite heavy guitar in it. Yeah, and yeah. it has it has it, it has everything. It's just everything within the song. Yeah,
0: plus all those like Middle Eastern, influences. Middle Eastern kind of vibes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they they were just a bunch I mentioned, but yeah, there's some really there's some cool country ish guitar, like some super compressed. Is Spruance... Is there like a pedal steel or something on this record as well.
2: Well, there is a lot of extra, yeah, not not him playing it. There's about right. forty, forty guest musicians on this Whoa. album. And actually, one of the things we're going to get into is the recording process because that was that's the most interesting part of this whole album actually as well. Um, so not maybe less a little less guitar focused. Okay. But just a whole recording process because it, it was—it's insane. But you, we'll get into that. <laughs> but yeah, there's some there's some very high profile. Uh, there's a couple of high profile uh, pedal steel players on there, and yeah, generally yeah, musicians. Cool. Yeah, high profile, sort of fairly good session players. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Nice. Yeah, that was that was cool to hear that stuff amongst all the mayhem.
2: Yeah. <clears throat> Okay, Rob, standout tracks. <laughs> all
1: right. So, for the people that really want to know about all that recording studio stuff, that's not very far away. Um, <laughs> 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 so, Excellent. I don't have a standout track. Okay. Um, I Which track did you? I didn't really dislike like, the least. I, I look. I just tried to find some moments like similar to past albums where I haven't been really into them, but. Try and find some moments and try and find um, something positive. Now, Pink Cadillac, I really love like that.
2: Pink Cigarette, yeah.
1: Pink Cigarette, sorry. Yeah. See, Pink Cadillac, I'm not even paying attention. I'm like, I'm listening to Natalie Cole right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, Pink Cigarette, sorry. Um, sorry that's a cool song. That's, that's- I really like that kind of. Chris Isaac's guitar kind of, yeah. you know, atmospheric. It's probably a semi-hollow body dripping in so much reverb yeah. and maybe a Bigsby that he's creating that because I think um, he in King for a Day he write, he's he got some of that style guitar as well, you know, with a 335 that he plays. Um, so I really like that. And there were moments in <clears throat> the Golem 2 that I, I kind of thought were cool. Um but with the clavin
2: yeah. of Okodad, there's some yeah.
1: Yeah, there was some there was some cool stuff, but for me it was kind of like I don't know. It was just too much, too much going on for me. Um it's just not my bag and well, that's, uh, that's totally and, cool.
2: That's totally cool. I but, know th- I definitely know this is not everyone's bag. This is this is uh it, it is it is uh, an acquired kind of taste.
1: And I'm starting to think you're just getting me back for Van Halen. But, but anyway. <laughs> <coughs> I'm getting no, you all I back for Barnsey and Van Halen. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, I don't think you're that type of person. No, but anyway, no, no I am, definitely not. I am a bit of a, I am keen to hear about some of the, the other things that are going on in the studio <laughs> that you mentioned.
2: Uh. Well, well, I, quick, I quickly do. So, sort of my my to me, this is a, I, I absolutely love this album. I think this is this is uh, it, it. When it when it first came out, because it was really quite different to the previous two Bungle albums, I I loved bits of it. I didn't love everything. I really love everything about it now. I love every track. Uh, and again, it was one of those things I hadn't listened to this in such a long time, and coming back to it for this. I, I, it just brought back so many so many memories and stuff like that. It was actually I, I, one of the first times I listened to this, um, it came out. Uh, I was part of a production of Jesus Christ Superstar. So I played guitar for a production of Jesus Christ Superstar. <clears throat> and there were a couple of diehard Bungle fans uh, who were part of the production. And the first time we listened to it, I think, was through the big system and we cranked it through the big system, <laughs> through the like the, the the front of house system for the for the production, and it was it's just so and there's so much going on. There's it's an insane amount of stuff going on, okay. um, which we will get into <laughs> for the recording. Actually,
1: you know what I enjoy yeah. most? I enjoy how much you enjoy it. Oh, That's cool, yeah. what I'm going to take out. of this. I
2: absolutely <laughs> love this. I absolutely love this. This is this is this is, uh, this is, is one cool. of my top five albums of all times. I got to say. Um, I mean, to me. Mike Patton, one of the greatest vocalists ever. I love his voice. He, and, it, and again, if you listen to the stuff he does, he does anything from like metal, thrash metal. Uh, there is an album he sang for, I don't know if anyone has heard of Dylan, uh, the Dillinger Escape Plan, like crazy sort of proggy metal stuff and the st- like insane singing over it. But then he also, you know, he does everything and then goes over, you know, there's a, he does a project called Mondocane where he sings old 60s, 70s Italian film music songs, wow. um, you know, and he does it, he's just his voice, he can make it fit into anything. Uh, and you can
1: hear that just on some, Fa- like Star AD, for instance. Yeah. He's like singing cabaret, then he's singing rock, like he can, all in the one song. And, and
2: yeah, Fa- with Faith and Mood, he did a lot of like Bob covers and stuff like that, and he, he sings all that stuff just beautifully. And, um uh, they did, I started a joke about a Bee Gees as well as a cover. They recorded it was a B side on one of the things as well, and um, he just he can find a voice for anything, and his range is insane as well, which yeah. you can hear on this album too. But so has I love he, I love his stuff. Sorry,
0: has he done um, voiceover work as well? Like, is he? He does. I think I
2: he read did some. Something. He did on what was that movie with Will Will Smith? Uh, he was the bad alien guy. Um,
1: I uh, iRobot
2: iRobot yes I think that's what it was he was the voice of the alien guy and he d- uh, for computer games and stuff he did a lot of yeah, he right. does a lot of the voice because he he's he is sort of can do anything just about with his voice um, and you, if you watch him live and I've seen him live I don't know ten twelve times at least in various things he does a lot like he you know hits his throat and he does things he does whatever he can whatever works you know right. whatever m- makes it work and. Lots of effects and different microphones and, and with Mr. Bungle, when I f- saw him with Mr. Bungle, I think he had three microphones and he kept swapping and different yeah, effects yeah, on yeah. them and stuff like that. And um, But to me, uh, the album as a whole, uh, you know, Sweet Charity is a killer song. None of them knew they were robots. Um, Retro Vertigo, which is written by Trevor on the bass player, who's an amazing bass player as well, and another guy who played, he's a, a bit of a session gun who played with everyone in one way or another. Um, and we talked about Nels Klein in the Wilco episode yeah, and the Nels yeah. Klein Singers. Trevor Dunn plays bass in the Nels Klein Singers okay. with Nels Klein as well. And he played, He's just lots of jazz ensembles as well. He's a classically trained, um, to place upright bass, contrabass. Uh, he wrote Retrovertigo, which is a beautiful song. Um, I think beautiful mm. chords in it too. um, Air Conditioned Nightmare. It just I love how the, it just goes within one song. I mean, if you listen to the whole album, there aren't many styles of music that weren't addressed in one way or another <laughs> within one of the songs. So, and I love that sort of stuff. I love that kind of how it goes all over the place. Um, so, yeah, to me, uh, Killer Band, great album. Listen to the whole back catalogue if you can. Also check out Secret Chiefs 3, which is Trace Burns' album uh, sort of other thing and Phantom Us which is Mike Patton's other thing or Peeping Tom or there's he's got so many different things that he's got going Um, so uh, before we get into the rather lengthy recording process thing should we take a quick break
0: sure this episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology the comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and the McNally-Smith College of Music. I was one of the beta testers for the course and can say as a music educator, I was really impressed by the logical sequence of learning. The course has also been endorsed by players such as Brett Garson and Greg Cup. For more details, check out the links in our show notes. All right, welcome back. We're talking about Mr. Bungles, California, which is Gabor's choice for this week. Crazy record. Back to you, Gabor.
2: All right. Okay, so this is going to be the the, the lengthy part of this. Uh, sort of recording process, there are a couple of uh, uh, really interesting long interviews with Trace Bruins um, and also with um, Trevor Dunn um, about the recording process. So, okay, so basically... Uh, uh, The band, when it came to recording in late 98, uh, they kind of had the choice, should they go digital or should they go analogue for recording? Because, I mean, that was still in the days when analogue was still... It was sort of just on the verge of everything moving to Pro Tools, right? So they decided to go analogue. So this was all recorded analogue on tape and... um, so this is, this is an interview, I'm sort of quoting out of an interview with Trace Bruins here. Um, In perspective of hindsight, I think it was the last multi-channel analog tape production of that massive of a scale ever to be attempted. For tape-based production, California is pretty much as ridiculous as it gets. So what they did was they started off uh, tracking the rhythm section skeletons on each song and um, Hang on. Uh, 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 yeah, so they, they basically recorded uh, onto – with tape, you have reels, right? So you have you have tape reels. And these tape reels are all uh, – well, he said uh, tape reels are around around about 15 or 20 minutes so per tape reel. So you put maybe two or three songs per tape reel. On each tape reel, you had um, around about 40 uh, – uh, uh, oh, no, sorry. On each tape reel, you had about 24 tracks because there were 24-track tw- ta- – tape reels so what happened was so original phase right they would record all the skeletons the the bass tracks of the songs uh, uh which was on one reel uh reel two would be the phase two overdubs and reel three would be phase three overdubs uh, each reel was 15 minutes long uh 15 to 20 minutes long and had two or three songs on it uh, there were multiple reel one two and three so you've got to think it's not like just bringing a laptop to a thing. For the yes. whole album, you had a lot syncing of-
1: Sinking tape machines. Yeah. Sinking
2: tape machine had all those. So, so this is what we're going to get into. So basically, so they recorded uh, initially at Coast Recorders in San Francisco. And that studio was capable of linking two 24 tape uh, track machines together for a total of 48 tracks. Now, in reality, only had 46 tracks because one track on each uh, tape machine would go to- um, uh, time codes to sort of sync the two machines together. So on that, they would record uh, drums, bass, uh, scratch guitars, and some keyboards as guides for subsequent recordings, right? Uh, then they made reference mi- reference mixes uh, and put them on reel two, right? So this is just just to, just to kind of get the idea of what how these big production recordings Fine. kind of went. So you had to put reference mixes. So you didn't have to take a bunch of reels and, To another studio to get overdubs done, you had reference mixes that you could take for overdubs to be recorded onto. So, um, um, uh, so they had three tracks of that reference mix of reference mixes that you had a little bit of control over the mixes for the overdubbing musicians. So they brought all the real twos. So they did all the the skeleton kind of recording, the bass tracks on real one. Then they did the submixes on reel two, so they took all the reel twos to a second studio called Different First Studio for overdubbing. Uh, uh, that studio was only capable to have one single twenty-four track machine, so they couldn't sync them together at that studio. That's why they had to have these reference mixes and just have it all down to one reel, right? Um, so they had uh, twenty tracks free on reel two, with the other four eaten up by the reference mix, uh, the three reference uh, tracks, and one for timecode. Uh, then they would overdub ensemble stuff. So every time there's a choir of Mike Patton's voice, like on Goodbye Sober Day and Holy Filament, uh, it's submixed from as many as 16 vocal tracks down to two, right? Just the craziness now, you know, you wouldn't think of that sort of stuff because you just go, oh, well, I've got limitless tracks and Logic or wherever Yeah, you know. that's right. So they had to mix it all down. Yeah. <clears throat> um, uh, you still, you know, you had to have all the time code stuff and all that sort of stuff. So then it would do 16 uh, tracks, eight stereo tracks of violin, viola and cello, which they would then also have to submix uh, back down. They wrote out all the uh, charts themselves because both Trevor Dunn and Trace Bruins um, uh, have quite a, uh, quite a strong musical harmony background and they know how to write out uh, scores, right? So they wrote out the charts for the string sections. Uh, so after tracking all the strings, they submixed those 16 tracks down to two or four tracks, depending on, I guess, how, big, how many instruments it were. So then there were eight tracks used, uh, blah, 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 uh, all the submixes. Then they went to the individual instruments. Uh, there was cymbal, lom, accordion, French and English horns, pedal steel, harmonica, etc. Uh, and then they also recorded lead vocals, more percussion, basically in that studio, filling up the whole second reel, right? So that's all the 24 tracks gone on the second reel. Um, Then it would go back to the first studio and combine that with the original bass tracks. But then it would get get even crazier uh, because they would then also record on uh, ADAT, uh, 8-track tape machines uh, in their rehearsal space, uh, which means they didn't have to spend as much money on the recording studio time. Uh, and then they would have to sync those back to the <laughs> back to the uh, tape machines as well. So in the end, long story short, uh, you ended up with about seventy two tracks of analog reels, right? Give or take, some for submixes and some for time codes, plus sixteen more tracks of ADAT. Uh, and it was on every track, but songs like None of Them Know ro- They Were Robots, Good Bye, Sober Day, and Sweet Charity went that far, right? So 72 tracks on real, 16 tracks on ADAD. Then they had to find a studio where they could mix it, where they could actually link all that stuff together. Uh, so they went to Soundcaster Studios in LA. Uh, that was the only studio they could find. They could sing three of those 24-track tra- uh, uh, studio tape machines together. Um, But in order to get the ADATs working, they actually had to slave everything to the ADATs, which was uh, basically they said, so the way it worked is um, you hit play on the first ADAT machine, then a few seconds later, the second one starts. A few seconds later, the first tape machine would start, then the second, then the third. So you had about a 25 to 30 second lag until anything actually started because they all had to physically... Sync. So, he said when it came to mixing, every time you press stop, um, it would take 25 to 30 seconds for it to start up again. So, the mixing process was insane and slowed everything right down. Uh, that studio had a 96-channel SSL board uh, console, which was to capacity... <laughs> Uh, and they did, then they had to write the auto- automation because, again, different to nowadays where it's just all mouse clicks, mm. it was actually you had to physically write the automation on the big consoles, but not all of the channels had automation available. So, when they were mixing, um, they actually had four guys standing over the mixing board and they had assigned sections and they had to, at certain times, pull faders up and down. Um, I mean, it just, that's like just... a performance, yeah. It was a performance, basically. Mm-hmm. And also, um, uh, they said they basically filled up every bit of track so, because they w- would run out of tracks but wanted to do more overdubs. So they were saying some tracks would have, uh, I don't know, a percussion part on it, but then later in the song, there would be a horn part on it on the same track. So they'd have to re-EQ, remix while they were printing it. So and, and basically according to them, it was probably one of the very last mass on that massive scale analog recording things ever done and especially through Warner Brothers. Everything pretty much after that all went uh, digital, which made life way, way easier.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So maybe for um maybe for the listeners that maybe haven't worked with tape before or understand tape, yeah. your sub the submixes you're discussing, basically they're Bouncing tracks, right? Yeah, so you might have a 10 piece drum kit being yep. recorded, like 10 microphones, yeah. And then, in order to take that somewhere else and have spare tracks, they're mixing it down to maybe four tracks or yeah. two tracks, and then they're taking that elsewhere. So, that you're freeing up tracks, you're freeing up tracks, yeah. So, so, yeah that's what all the sub mixes are for, cra- yeah. It's, it's a crazy, like, even for someone. We've probably had four track tape machines, and you know well, I started with a Fostex where you just bounce, bounce, bounce. And bounce and you just yeah. Continue. And, and I mean, that's add, what the Beatles did. It adds noise and hiss and uh, whatever. And then we got digital ones. I remember my Fostex one. Yeah. That you was, had sixteen tracks and ghost tracks, and you're still bouncing. Yeah. You just learn <laughs> how to do how to mix things. You know, to yeah, it's wow. amazing. People want to check out. How that was done back in the day, and then, you know, the edits when they would cut the tape as well, physically,
2: actually cut it and glue it back together, cutting
1: and taping, and they did that. There's a the Metallica Black album, you know, that's one of where they he was Bob Rock was cutting tape himself, you know, for the edits, and you know they don't know how don't know how good they've got it now. Oh, it's amazing now. Art form and watching that mix, you know, two or three guys on a soundboard like having cues where they've got to change something and mix something and quickly reacure it as they're printing it. Yeah, it's an amazing, it's it's an art form in itself. It is
2: an art form in itself. And I think, I mean, if you listen to the album, just the amount of stuff that's going on, it's insane that it was all done on tape.
1: Yeah, that's amazing to hear, man, because that to me is, yeah, that's just ridiculous, stupendous. (laughs) It sounds great. (laughs) I know. It's a great sounding
2: record. It's a really, really good sounding album, yeah.
0: Hey, can I just posit an idea that yep. if Warner Brothers didn't put up any money for promotion,
1: that's probably why. <laughs> do you,
0: yes, do you think they were near bankruptcy from all the studio hours?
1: Well, well, they—they
0: they, uh,
2: That's one of the reasons they went. Uh, they did because uh, I think they had their own eight-eight machines, and that's why they did a, okay. r- a lot of recording. because um, yeah. they were given a certain budget, and I think this was the first time also for Mister Bungle. That they actually they used all the money from the budget okay. uh, to record because prior, um, I mean, was, uh, Warner Brothers gave them, I guess, quite a good advance and quite a big budget because, yeah. I mean, it's a major label. Probably not, I mean, not as big as Faith and the War would have been, but um, they would have gotten quite a good budget. And uh, they were saying, that, say, it's a, I'll, I'll send you a link to that interview. It's a really, really long interview and really interesting interview with Trace Bruins. Because he he also he was uh, he was in charge of um what was uh, he basically worked out how to how they could actually pull it off. yeah, so wow. he was he was in charge and and that's the other thing. There used to be people in in when it comes to a lot of these big records, there were people actually that were not just engineers and not just producers, but there were people that would be the ones that work out how actually logistically it is mm. you can do it. And how to go about bounce you know which which tracks are we going to bounce now, yeah how many tracks are we going to bounce it down to uh, you know how are we going to do this, and where can we go to link three tape machines up to and that's sort of, so that, that that used to be a job, and that was trace bruins did that in this um, in this thing so it, I think it's pretty amazing for how the album sounds
0: absolutely that yeah. it was
2: basically them engineering and producing it wow. Um,
0: yeah, even just the management the of the tapes, not to mix yeah. up stuff or yeah, whatever. And I mean, out. these
2: tapes—if you ever, I mean, if people don't know about this sort of stuff—if you look it up, so these these twenty-four track tape reels—they were massive, mm-hmm. and they weighed quite a lot. And then if you imagine you have um, three or four um, of these reels um, per, maybe fit—I don't know two, three songs on, like they said, two, three yeah. songs on one and you have an album of 11 songs, I think it is, 10 songs. So you have quite a lot of reels. It's a lot of weight, a lot of things you've got to carry around and it's, it's yeah.
1: And the thing that strikes me is as someone, I've done a couple of projects at JMC and yeah. they're taught, you know, demagnetize, clean, take yeah. the tapes off, like can't get too hot because the tape stretches yeah. and all this stuff that goes on to think that, I want to know how fastidious they are about that in their environment because yeah. you know these students are taught all this and you see that and it's frustrating in the studio to see them take the tape off, demagnetize, clean their head and that's just for one song yeah. and multi-tracking.
2: Yeah.
1: Are they doing, you know, do they go to that length because that is one of the most time-consuming things yeah. in a tape studio yeah. is somebody who is that into maintaining the integrity of the tape and the machine.
2: Yeah.
1: That eats up as much time as actually recording. Absolutely. Does. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah,
2: yeah. No, it's crazy. It's amazing. It's it's uh it's uh, and it's one of those things I never knew about that until recently when I sort of found these interviews. And it's very interesting to hear about all this stuff and how it was all done and um um and, and yeah, for how the album sounds, I think it's quite quite an achievement. Mm. Um now one of the things I quickly want to mention before we go on to gear. So I mentioned that the album release uh, was pushed back from uh, the July originally meant to be June eighth, and was pa- pushed back to July thirteenth in nineteen ninety nine. Now, uh, this is quite an actually funny thing, and I don't know if, if Rob kind of got into that. The Red no, or Chili I Peppers. No, I did read it, but uh, it's the not Red part or of Chili Peppers my... conflict. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, apparently, there's been a lot of things between Red or Chili Peppers and Mike Patton. So when. Patton came out uh, with Faith No More and Emoyen Epic and had the long hair and did the head banging and it was this whole kind of rap metal thing. Uh, in those days, uh, Anthony Kiedis accused Mike Patton of copying him, so Mike Patton apparently copied Anthony Kiedis. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been sort of they they didn't they don't like each other and never liked each other very much, to the point where again. Apparently a coincidence, <laughs> but I don't know. So Red Hot Chili Peppers, uh, who are also on Warner Brothers, were scheduled to release their album Californication on the same day as Mr Bungle were going to bring out their album California. <laughs> now, apparently Anthony Kiedis wasn't very keen on that. Mm. And it was Anthony Kiedis actually who said, well, no. That's being pushed back. We're releasing our album. And it went as far as, um, because they released both released an album at the same time. And uh, Mr. Bungle for this album, actually, they were trying, they actually were trying to make some, because Bungle basically so far, and you you hear that in a lot of the interviews as well, it's not a money-making venture. It's a, they're in it, and you can really hear that with a lot of the music. They're, They're all of them. They're guys, they're in it for the art of it. They, they, they want to produce something. They want to create music. They're not in it to sell, obviously. Mm. Um, um, but for this album, they were trying to actually get on some bigger tours and stuff like that. Like, for example, the 2000 Big Day Out here in Australia. Um, but Anthony Kiedis, and apparently this is Anthony Kiedis himself, Said if Mr. Bungle plays on any of these festivals, and there was a bunch of other summer festivals in Europe, uh, if Mr. Bungle play on any of these festivals, we pull the Chili Peppers out. So uh, Mr. Bungle lost a lot of festival gigs, including the Big Day Out in 2000 uh, because Ke- Anthony Kiedis threatened to pull Red or Chili Peppers from the yeah. lineup. Um, When
0: when I went in 2000, I I went with friends who who would have loved to have seen Bungle.
2: They they were meant to be there, but Anthony Kiedis said we're not doing this. But anyway, uh, because of all this, as a joke, uh, for Halloween 1999, uh, Mr. Bungle did a Halloween show where they all dressed up as the members of the Red Chili Peppers. (laughs) 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 Down to the where they even had tattoos like drawn on. Uh, so uh, uh, Mike great. Patton put on a long blonde wig and spoke with a lisp the whole night. <laughs> uh, Trey Spruance, the guitarist, uh, was dressed uh, in white with a with a, like a halo, and he was dressed as the ghost of Hillel Slovak, the guitarist who died. Oh, <laughs> wow, that's dark. Jeez. Um, too soon, man. Oh, uh, well, too, yeah, well. <laughs> and uh, uh, so they're all dressed up as the Chili Peppers and apparently they covered covet, uh, they covet um, Give It Away Around the World under the bridge and scar tissue. <laughs> uh, and all through the night, um, um, Mike Patton is very good at, at uh, amping the crowd up. He's really, he's a great front man. Uh, I, I, like I said, I've seen him heaps of times and he is very good at kind of getting the crowd's into it yeah he's he's a a really good from it and so the whole night he was kind of egging the crowd on saying no don't call me mike my name is anthony how dare you make that mistake (laughs) it was i i just thought it was really funny so uh they they basically did a whole night where they were the red or chili peppers (laughs) and that apparently angered anthony kitt even more But the, they were all very happy about it. It uh, kind of annoying them, and that, that that was yeah. So one of the reasons uh, why they sort of uh, threatened to pull out of a lot of festivals if Mr. Bungle were in the same lineup as them.
1: Well, that was my fun fact segment.
2: Oh, sorry, brought to
1: you, brought to you by Gabor Jessica and <laughs> I'm more than happy to turn it over to you for this album. So it was fantastic. <laughs> it's a great story, that one.
2: Now, gear. There's not that much information about gear, but um, uh, uh, this is sort of basically what, what I got out of it. Now, uh, um, Rob was talking about 335 hollow body guitars and evidence and stuff like that. Now, apparently during that whole time, um, during a, like King for a Day time, uh, this Mr. Bungle album and the previous Mr. Bungle album... Uh, he, uh, Trace Prince, pretty much had two guitars that he used and that are meant to be on all those albums. It's the only guitars that are on his albums. He had a black Made in Mexico Strat with EMG pickups in it. So, black Strat, white scratch plate with black EMG pickups on it. And all the jazzy stuff uh, came from a GNL F100, which is a um, kind of like a Strat shaped guitar. Uh, GNL, two humbuckers, all natural finish. It looks very plain, very simple. But apparently that's what he used on Evidence. That's what he used uh, on most of the Faith and More album. And that's what he used all the stuff that sounds more jazzy. That's what he used on, on that. So it's a hollow, It's a solid body guitar. Okay. Solid yeah, body right. GNL. and uh, So that's I'm not 100% sure, but that's, a, that's pretty much around that time. That's what he mostly used. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, people out there, but uh, as far as I know. Now amp wise, uh, in the studio, he used uh, uh, for all the cleans. I've used a Fender Twin. Um, uh, there's a quote where he said, "In the studio, I used a Fender Twin for Twin for all the clean guitars." Um, uh, we'll get back to that for the live stuff later on. Um, around that time, uh, he used mostly a two amp setup. So he used a Twin for a clean for all the cleans, and he, uh, there's pictures from that era where he. Had different martial heads or a PV 5150 for the, uh, the old the original PV 150. The, mm. Is it block letter or whatever they call It's called the original PV 5150. Yes, that's the amps he used a lot during that time. So, not a hundred percent sure. So, I saw him, um, uh, in Secret Chiefs 3 in 1998, so just before they were actually, uh, for that tour, they, they played on recovery as well. Secret Chiefs 3 one recovery. And he announced in recovery that Mr. Bungle, after they'd come back from that tour, they would go into the studio to record the new album. So, uh, and in that tour, he used pretty much a whole... For, uh, they played three sets. It played for about three hours, more than three hours. It was a long night they played for Secreties 3. And it was basically all the guys out of Mr. Bungle. And then you take Mike Patton out and put a violinist there. That was basically the lineup. Uh, so it was the same bass player, same drummer, um, all the same guys out of Mr. Bungle. Uh, and in, for that, he used that GNL um, F100 for pretty much the whole night. He had a Fender Twin and he had a Marshall JMP uh, with a 4x12 cabinet and just an AB box to go between two. and he had a ring mod- modulator. Uh, that he used as well. But it was just yeah. that. That was pretty much it.
1: I did look at the evidence clip there and he's using a three, like a red dot. That's not him in a three, clip. Three, oh, that's that's not him in a him? clip. So okay. uh,
2: it, the, he, before any of the clips, he um, he left or was kicked out. I don't know. Oh, okay. And that guy was actually the guitar tech who oh, briefly joined them. For for, him. Uh, the guitar tech uh, joined the band for the tour basically. So that's the guitar tech. And for that tour, he was the guitar player. But then... He left, and then that John Hudson is it? John Hudson joined after that. Who's, who is who yeah, is with yeah, Faith right. No More now? Um, so yeah, that's not him. That's a different. That's a different guy. Uh, but uh, interesting quote um, for live for the, the live Mister Bungle tour that they did for that album. In the studio, I used a Fender Twin for all the clean guitars, but it's not a very portable amp. Live, I used a Pod. Going direct, Uh, (laughs) and it was one of the original old pods going through a spring reverb. uh, So, you had an external spring reverb for clean sound and a Marshall JMP1, the single rack unit, yeah, direct for all the dirty stuff. That's it. So, that's all he used for that because apparently, uh, and again, it's part of that really long interview. I'll send you the link for that if you maybe want to. I don't know if you want to put it in the show notes. Uh, there was so much stuff going on with samples, with changing sounds, with doing this, with doing that. Uh, he was saying it was one of the most stressful live sets he's ever done, the God. live set for that album. Because he was sort of in charge of a lot of the sampling, bringing in samples. Okay. But they never played along to click tracks. There were samples that were brought and It was samples, for example, the pedal steel guitar, yeah. violin parts, all that sort of stuff. They were brought oh, wow. in. Wow. on keyboards but apparently and this is another quote um danny heifetz the drummer who now lives in australia actually um and what's the band he plays with he plays with a band uh, they were on Spicks and Specks once too it's like a kind of middle eastern kind of sounding but i'll see if i can think of the name but um he lives in melbourne anyway danny heifetz but apparently he's a he's not a super flash drummer but anything you throw at him, any time changes, anything, he will do it first time, no problems. Mm-hmm. And super solid as a rock, like a pretty much like a metronome. <laughs> so they could throw all these samples in without playing along to click track. So it was all done wow. on the fly. Uh, but yeah, using a pod, going direct for clean <laughs> and a Marshall JMP1 rack for dirty. Um, and it sounds alright. There's a couple of clips, live clips. There's a they did a bizarre, the bizarre festival and stuff like that. Um, and they did a bunch of shows and there's some live footage of that from that time. And it did, it sounded pretty good. I thought.
1: Wow. It's interesting. Those things are starting to go up in price too.
2: Pods, yeah. Thanks no, to no, the JMP. Oh, JMPs. Oh yeah, JMPs. Yeah. And
1: the ADA MP ones as well. Like they were so cheap for so long. And no one now wanted all them. All of a sudden they're going. Whoa.
2: Yeah. It's yeah. Because
1: the Marshall code sucks. Oh yeah, right. my big time. They're <laughs> 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 just trying to put that in there, you know, like, oh, no.
2: anyway. So that's it. That's that's my um, that's my Mr. Bungle California. So I mean, all up, I think listen to it people. It's it it is it's very to me, it's very it reminds me a lot of I love kind of sixties film music. Henry Mancini, uh, Ennio Morricone, all that sort of stuff. I love all that kind of stuff, and it reminds me a lot of that. It has a lot it of does. that spaghetti western vo- vibe in it.
1: I was thinking, like, cartoon as a kid. That was the, you know, I can imagine a cat chasing a mouse, and <laughs> yeah, there's a know, lot of that. There's a Sylvester lot of Sylvester trying to catch Tweety, and all the Road Runner. Like, it's all that kind of. I could visualize that stuff while I was listening to it. Yeah, but um, just a little. Uh, addition to my fun facts thing <laughs> people should check out um, Mr Bungle's website and their FAQ page because every fun fact you'll ever need to know about Mr Bungle is there <laughs> and it's with tongue well and truly firmly planted in cheek oh, as well they're, so they're, it's great yeah
2: they they they're awesome nothing is serious with those guys it's it's everything is is everything's tongue in cheek everything is kind of making fun of things
1: Mm. And that FAQ page is like if you if you're a Bungle fan and you got a couple of hours to kill, it, like <laughs> hashtag rabbit hole. Yeah, that's yeah, all absolutely. I'm gonna say.
2: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I mean, if you, if you haven't heard uh, Mr. Bungle, check it out. Uh, maybe start with that album and then work your way back uh, to the other albums because the other albums are a lot more out there than this, especially the Disco Volante, which is brilliant, but it is very out there. Uh, and the first one is very it has a '90s kind of funk metal. But with circus music and all that sort of stuff in it as well. <laughs> and if you into especially if you're into that sort of little bit more Middle Eastern thing, uh, Secret Chiefs three is the um, the sort of other project of Trace Perensis um, which is kind of a lot of very Middle Eastern kind of styled music and strange time signatures and rhythms and instruments and all that sort of stuff. And I mean Mr., uh, Mike Patton, Check any of his stuff out because it's all good. Uh, Trevor Dunn also has done a whole bunch of different stuff. There's a, a, you know, they all have done different things in their own kind of way. i try to remember Danny Heifetz's band. I'll I'll, I'll send you all the info, Matt, if you want to put it into the show notes. Yeah, cool. That's awesome. Um, But, yeah, very interesting band, very quirky group of people. Um, Yeah, just great musicians in my opinion. So that's my my, uh, iconic album.
0: Great stuff. Thank you, Gabor. I love the diversity. We've got a pretty cool collection of records so far. Yeah. Yeah. So it's rad. Gabor, when you're not uh when you're not channeling your inner Troy Sprunts, what are, <laughs> where can people find you?
2: Um you can find me if you want to hear me talk even more than I just did uh, for about almost an hour. Um uh you can go and check out the super fun, awesome happy time pedal show. Uh all one word, except for the, the. So super fun, awesome, happy time pedal show on YouTube where we do uh, myself and my friend Alex, we do pedal video, like reviews, demos, and guitars, and amps, and stuff. Cool.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is a great show. Links in the show notes as well. Rob, when you're not not listening to Mr Bungle, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm not
2: not.
1: Um, yeah, just just gigging, driving. Listening, learning. Um, but if you want to know where I'm doing all those things, uh, yeah, just my website's probably the best place, which is Road Trip Ent. So dot com.
0: Awesome. Very cool. Very cool. Well, guys, thank you so much. It's been another fun episode. Checking out a very interesting record, an intriguing record. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah. Yeah check it out folks thank you so much for for tuning in thank you also to fretboard biology who are our sponsors of the show check out their online guitar system which is uh links in our show notes too of course we've got our interview show where we're talking to leading guitarists around the world and there'll be more iconic albums to come maybe just subscribe and then the stuff gets delivered to your pod player wherever you are all right, my name is Matt Wakeling. You've been listening to the Guitar Speak podcast with Gabor seeker Thanks,
1: Matt. Thanks, Rob. And Rob. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Gabor.
0: Thank you so much, fellas. And uh, I'll leave everyone, all the listeners, with words of wisdom from the great Michael Schenker, who once told me... Keep rocking, Keep on rocking, Keep on rocking." indeed. All right. <laughs> Catch you next time. Uh, Bye uh, now. Uh, 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 uh.